This is a roundtable debate on rereading Benjamin's theory of attention and distraction, produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. The roundtable was between Mike Jennings, Michael Wood, and Thomas Levine, and was hosted by Daniela Fabricius. It took place in Princeton on September 23, 2013. This essay in particular has a, an extraordinary afterlife and a deeply urgent contemporaneity. Our sensory apparatus under conditions of capitalism has been so degraded that we are no longer capable of an adequate sensory apprehension of our environment. I read him as saying distraction is, a, is actually a form of attention. That's why a distracted person can form habits. The question is why distraction itself might hold the key. You have to ask yourself what has to happen when one is distracted. I think distraction is the precondition for certain forms of training and habituation that concentration simply doesn't allow for. Given that we're living in an age which is marked, if by nothing else, than by profound media historical transition, Nothing is more useful than a text that explores what the ramifications of media historical transition might be. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the studio. My name is Daniela Fabricius, and I'm here today with Mike Jennings, Tom Levine, and Michael Wood. Um, if everybody could introduce themselves and let us know a little bit about what projects you're working on right now. This is uh, Michael Wood. I work here at Princeton, and I'm working on, among other things, a project about distraction, which uh, not only uh, involves Benjamin, but began with Benjamin. The idea of distraction, which kicked me off, came from Benjamin's, from this particular essay. This is Tom Levine. I'm uh, currently working on a big multi-year project on what could be called the media archaeology of voicemail, specifically dealing with the moment when people could make recordings at home using their gramophones, which represents media historically this really interesting and deeply Benjaminian moment when for the first time people would encounter their voice as recordable, separate from their bodies, etc. And I'm Mike Jennings. Um, I have just finished and will appear this fall the first full-scale biography of Benjamin, co-authored with Howard Island from MIT. And as far as Benjamin goes, I'm now turning to a long-overdue project, an edition of One Way Street with an introduction by me and Miriam Hansen. Perhaps we can begin by discussing the historical context of the essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Its Technological Reproducibility, and talk a little bit about Benjamin's biography and what was going on at the time that he wrote the essay. I think everyone here has agreed that the, the, the essay is all too often understood as a pure essay in film theory or even media theory, when actually it has a much more complex context with, that makes it, I think, more interesting. It's an integral part uh, of the Arcades project. And just to refresh people's memory, the Arcades started as what he conceived as a very short essay to be co-written with his friend Franz Hessel, probably in 1927 or early 1928. And he began collecting massive amounts of notes, quotations, his own reflections on the history of the rise of urban commodity capitalism in France in the mid-19th century. And that project uh, lasted without significant interruption until 1930, when he put it aside for four full years, probably because of the apparatic nature of some of his reflections, which he derived from surrealism. So he often characterized this phase as the surrealist phase. We might call it a kind of exercise in social psychoanalysis. And when he took it up again in 1934, he uh, uh, emphasized that he now was much more concerned in what he called sociological perspectives on the material. The urging of the Institute for Social Research, he composed in late spring 1935 an expose of the entire project, which after his death was published as Paris, the capital of the 19th century, which many of us know it contains, it's not an essay in any sense of the word. It tries to lay out the entire trajectory of the material he would cover and give us some sense of some of his approaches to that material. The crucial fact here is that was completed by June 1935, and the very next major work he took up was the work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility. So the first version of it uh, was written in September and October of 1935, and the crucial second version was written from December into early 1936. That version was then significantly redacted or censored by the apparatus of the Institute, however one wants to look at it. 
translated into French. Because already in exile. Already in exile, and was published already in May 1936. He then continued to revise for another three years. And so what's published in English as the third version of the essay is actually a more or less palimpsestic version of what he's been interested in since 1935. So just to, to show you a little bit about how the essay is related to uh, the arcades, I have two little quotations, one of them to uh, uh, Gretel Karplus, who would later become Gretel Karplus Adorno, and one to Max Horkheimer. So he wrote to Gretel Karplus at more or less at the conclusion of the completion of the first version. In these last weeks, I have come to recognize that hidden structural character of today's art, of the situation of today's art, which makes it possible to recognize what for us is decisive, but only now taking effect in the fate of art in the 19th century. In this regard, I have realized my epistemological theory, which is crystallized around the very esoteric concept of the, quote, now of recognizability, unquote, a concept that very probably I haven't shared even with you, and a decisive example. I have found that aspect of 19th century art, which only now is recognizable, as it never was before and never will be afterward. And he elaborates to Horkheimer precisely a week later, the essay is an advance in the direction of a materialist theory of art. If the subject of the book on the arcades is the fate of art in the 19th century, this fate has something to say to us only because it is contained in the ticking of a clock whose striking of the hour has just reached our ears. What I mean by this is that art's fateful hour has struck, and I have captured its signature in a series of preliminary reflections entitled The Work of Art in the Age of Its Technological Reproducibility. As Benjamin says elsewhere, we come to understand our own age by inscribing a prior age with which it's synchronous. And so it's important to see his reflections on media, on film, on architecture in the work of art essay in its relation to his understanding of the art of the 19th century as it was put down in its preliminary form in the Paris of the uh, Paris capital of the 19th century. In a way, it's a very contemporary essay, the work of art essay, um, but you would say that maybe there's something like the idea that there's a seed of um, the 19th century and its art forms in what he's talking about, the contemporary culture he's talking about in the, art, the work of art essay. Well, yeah, it's, it's intimately related to his thinking on the rise of photography in the middle of the uh, 19th century, uh, and that we get at uh, the nature of that those first photographic forms by understanding what was uh, spawned by them, namely film. Similarly, when we get to architecture, it would be too easy to think that architectural forms that he had in mind are simply the forms with which he was surrounded but rather those forms that he uh, elaborates on in the first sections of Paris Capital, where he talks about the incommensurabilities between new technological forms, such as iron construction, and their expression of what he's still calling in spring 1935 the dream image of the collective, namely that these advanced technological forms take on a retrograde appearance so that train stations looked like chateaus, modern office buildings looked like uh, medieval castles. Those would be the first kinds of buildings he had in mind, mid-19th century France, when he began thinking about contemporary forms of architecture. It seems to me also very important to remind listeners of another proximate context for this essay, and that is at least one version was described by Benjamin as Kampfthesen, fighting theses. Um, this refers both to its paratactic nature, a series of numbered sections, but also the fact that it was, Mike, help me here, um, read at or produced for a meeting of anti-fascist writers in Paris. That's the author's producer. Uh-huh. Which is clearly intimately related to mm -hmm. these battle theses. He does talk about it, though. That's the structure of the argument is, is all about not being useful to fascism. Yeah, absolutely. That, so that belongs to its moment, the idea exactly. that there's anything that could be not that, useful that, to this fascism. This is a, another <laughs> urgency. a whole different idea, yeah. yeah. Can you say something about how the essay was received at the time that it was published? It was written as an entree for Benjamin to the radical left in Paris. The Institute, for I think historically perfectly sound reasons, had no interest in a link to the radical left in Paris. It was interested in solidifying its position as a centrist or somewhat left-centrist organ of German thought. Uh, at a moment when the shadow was creeping over Europe, one can understand their concern that the more radical political formulations 
were taken out. Uh, Benjamin bridled. He understood some of that, but he bridled at the extent of the revisions when they would take out words like socialism. So there's a, there's a real contradiction between the, the intention that we see in version two and three and the difference between that and the French version that was actually published. The essay actually had a very considerable immediate impact in Paris. It was discussed at a number of special lectures and discussions among French intellectuals. It was referenced by people like Marot at writers' conferences. It also circulated very widely he had an offer to have an English translation of the second version, the mm -hmm. full version, which Horkheimer would not allow. It was very interesting. Probably a guy know, Tom knows a lot about it. It was by Jay Leda, who mm -hmm. was the associate yeah. curator of film at MoMA at that time, right? Yep. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Horkheimer had, if he had little interest in the full version being published in France, he had even less interest in the full version being published in New York in 1936. Um, People don't understand that it really did have a big impact, but the Institute worked to limit the impact. Benjamin's good friend, um, Adrienne Monnier, the proprietor of the her famous bookshop, mm -hmm. which was the meeting point of all the major French intellectuals, offered to have a subscription version with a special introduction by Benjamin if the Institute would give them permission to produce off-prints. And the Institute specifically prevented this because they didn't think that even in its expurgated form, it was too dangerous. I think another important context within Benjamin's oeuvre is a series of texts that he wrote over the decade prior about film, specifically about Soviet film, criticizing extant European film production in contrast to the use of montage and the politicality of form in Soviet cinema. This is one important context for this essay as well. Also, I think the fact that he, he writes about film and photography and is often taken to be meaning some rather abstract, essentialized medium in each case, as if he didn't know, you know, different kinds of film and different kinds of photography. He sort of takes it for granted. He does use, often say, just film. Film. But he assumes that we know, you know, that could be Chaplin, could be Keystone Cops, he could be Eisenstein. That is film, but it's not as, it's not as if it's a single solid homogeneous medium with the same rules. All and the yet time. the essay is very specific. There's clearly a good object, uh, a type of filmic practice that performs or realizes all the potential of the medium, specifically montage, and one that attempts to sew together with the uh, glue of sentimentality, to use a phrase that Siegfried Krakauer once invoked, through a kind of narrative, reactionary tendency, all the radical explosive potential that the medium has. Right. So, yes, Chaplin, yes, Mickey Mouse, yes, Eisenstein, but no... Not Max Reinhardt. <laughs> right, and, and particularly no to the attempt to re-theatricalize, restore a certain kind of literary continuity uh, to a medium that is anything but. It's a very interesting movement. I think it's just an undercurrent in the essay, but pretty clear once you've thought about it, is that he's quite critical of celebrations of film, romantic celebrations of film, as he talks about. They talk with a remarkable lack of discretion about the future of film, and he doesn't like the Midsummer Night's Dream and the Max Reinhardt, the poetic, theatrical, arty business of film. And at the same time, he's always on the side of the film spectator, mm -hmm. as the mass audience is sort of, in the end, the hero of that story, but not film critics and not film theorists on the whole. It's got an interesting move, I think. Yeah. Interesting an, intuitive an, move. An important intertext that Tom has just indirectly cited is Krakauer's little essay called Calico World. And the interesting thing about Benjamin is he's interested in montage as a effect of the cutting room. Krakauer's point instead is that film has the potential to break through and uh, uh, reveal the structure of the apparently seamless ideological construction of the world in the very artificiality and partiality of the set, mm -hmm. which is then recorded. The this constructedness of the film. The constructedness. And Krakauer had a certain faith that the viewer could see that through somehow, the uh, illusions of what we'll call traditional film, and Benjamin was wary of that. Mm, that's interesting. Just to defend Krakow for a moment, I should <laughs> say, Krakow too, like Benjamin, an ardent supporter of Vertov, a critic when everybody else was being enthusiastic of Ruttmann, 
uh, Berlin mm-hmm. City Symphony, which Krakauer was one of the first to call aestheticizing in its in its rhythmicality rather than simply in its parataxis breaking everything apart. So Krakauer was very sensitive to the possibilities of different regimes of montage, some of which could be ultimately recuperative versus others that were, one could say, epistemological. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another interesting intertext, which is you know, named in the text, is George Dermer's book, which Benjamin says a wonderful thing about him. He says he detests the cinema and knows nothing of its meaning, but he does know something about its structure. And Duhamel is not there because he doesn't like the cinema. He's there because he knows about the cinema, but he's got it wrong. And he got it wrong in ways that are sort of upside down, which is why he's cited in this way, not a sort of random snobbishness about the cinema, but just quite specific understanding of what cinema does, except that Duhamel doesn't like it and Benjamin does like it. It's a very interesting inversion. He says things like, I I can no longer think what I want to think, Duhamel says, in the cinema. The moving images substitute themselves my own thoughts. Precisément, as, as, as one might say. Then he also, all the rest about the German uh, thing of it's a pastime for people who don't need to think, who can't think, unlettered people, and so on. Everything, all that for Benjamin is actually part of what makes it interesting. It's because of these things that becomes a new mode of perception. And it's not just a disagreement with Duhamel. It's actually a, it's a complete, rather subtle inversion of the Duhamel uh, posture. It's very interesting, I think. Yeah, so Duhamel stands as kind of the crown witness for Benjamin's claims that certain forms of film, just like certain forms of painting, Michael started out by saying this, have the capacity to absorb us into their space. And as such, they're cultic. Right? And he's going yeah. to differentiate yes. those forms of art that push us away from their space and allow a different kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, without, without saying now so early in the conversation what that relationship might be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there's clearly a relationship between the politics of form and a concomitant regime of attention that it not necessarily produces, but, for example, might provoke or encourage. And how is Benjamin able to draw a line between these uses of film? Does he keep that line ambiguous, or is there a kind of clear set of criteria. How do you know if you're watching a good film or a bad film in, in the sort of political context that he thinks of it? My sense is that there's something slightly utopian about Benjamin's view here, that he's not that he does know these things, but that he wants to make the most optimistic guess possible about a movie audience. He wants to trust the audience, although he doesn't necessarily know that they will do this, but only believes that they could. That's why Adorno objects to it. When Adorno objects to the theory of distraction, he just we, you know, you're just treating the movie audience as if they're intelligent or they could think for themselves, but they can't. They're just being manipulated by the industry and by capitalism. So you can't treat stooges as if they were critical thinkers. And then Benjamin is obviously saying, well, they're, for me, they're not stooges. What do you think, Mike? I'm not sure that he knows. It's only a page or so in the essay. I'm yeah. not sure he knows quite how this works. I think what's hard about the essay is that it comes at a certain stage of his thinking on, on a, a very important issue, which he refers to here, his concept of the dialectical image. And so in 1935, his concept of the dialectical image was still profoundly influenced by his thought thinking about surrealism. So that certain objects, as for the surrealists, have a very ambiguous status. They are direct reflections of all the ills that beset society under capitalism, under conditions of modernity, while at the same time in their ambiguity contain the potential, and this is what Michael's getting at, trusting the audience, to be able to read off a certain potential, whether that's utopian. Well, actually, it's always utopian. It's never progressive, right? So he refuses at this stage to draw a line between the utopian element and the retrograde or enslaving element of the cultural object. In the course of the next year, under the force of of Adorno's penetrating critique of this stage of the dialectical image, he will move away from this surrealist idea that any given film or any given building could in itself contain these countervailing forces and move back to a position which he'd actually already developed in 1924, that the historical object was actually a construction, itself a montage that can only be constructed ex post facto in interpretation. But that's for a stage after this essay. So the point is not necessarily to differentiate between good and bad objects, but rather to look at the explosive potential that a certain type of cultural production, and it can be film, but it can manifest itself in all kinds of media, might have at a particular juncture. And it's this capacity 
to transform enshrined modes of perception, to force an encounter with a certain sensorial regime and its historicity that is the potential of a certain kind of cinema. Not only radical montage, though I think if one had to pin him down, that would be the the locus of greatest potential, but also, for example, in both Mickey Mouse, Charlie Chaplin. These are not types of cinema that one normally would gather together under one rubric. To go to the text, an example of this ambiguity, and I think almost every key term in the essay is intentionally ambiguous. It has a positive and a negative connotation. So in the second version of the essay, if you're following along at home, uh, this is in section six. In a key passage, he says, the function of film is to train human beings in the apperceptions and reactions needed to deal with a vast apparatus whose role in their lives is expanding almost daily. So the first key word here is training, which we'll turn to later. But for now, to put some pressure on the term apparatus, the term apparatus here refers to at least two things. On the one hand, it refers to the social apparatus in its full extent because for him, that social apparatus is itself, he thought of it in terms of 18th century optical device, the phantasmagoria, right? So the effects of the phantasmagoria on daily life under conditions of capitalism are increasing daily, robbing us of the human capacity to think, to discriminate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the things that as a Kantian, he thought were central to what we are as human beings. While at the same time, within the apparatus understood differently, what the idea of the cinematic apparatus say, which then harbored potential utopian possibilities. So that one term apparatus is loaded for him. And he fails in his use of key terms like this in this essay, to discriminate the positive from the negative. Again, trusting his readership. I just think that the, the term, I forgot what the English term for that is, but when he talks about reception and distraction, what he talks about is, is a, an instrument of practice. It finds in film its ideal Übungsinstrument. The English does say something rather different, but I, that's a very interesting idea, that, that exactly what, what that quote says, that, you know, that what we're talking about here is learning how to do things, getting better at it. Not everybody's gonna learn at the same time. It's not a recipe, you gotta practice. Say just a little bit about um, the the actual style of the essay, the writing itself, uh, where it fits into the context of his writing as a whole. Yeah, I can say something. I mean, I think, Mike, Mike it, it's true, isn't it, that he, this not making a distinction between the good and the bad is actually a stylistic feature and a sort of temperamental mm -hmm. move and not strictly a developmental. It's not something, in a way, he got better at being ambiguous over time rather than, <laughs> rather than worse. Right? And it, but it's, it, does, it, it is rather bewildering to read because I think you read these moments. I, I, the, the thing in the essay that most people have difficulty with, I think, is the concept of aura. And rightly so, it seems to me, because it's described in a way as if, as if the loss was so terrible. The words used for the loss, verkümmert, you know, it's, it's, well, how do we talk about the, the pain and the sorrow? And then there's that wonderful passage about photography of people. The aura has its last moment of life, and you see aura yeah, beckoning. Uh, in those portraits, we see aura waving to us for the last time, you know, before it disappears. This is very beautiful and very elegiac. And a person who is, uh, as we're working harder at being a simpler, uh, forward-looking person, Marxist man of his time, would have cut it out or changed the tone. Because it, because it gets in the way, really, of the affect of where this essay is going. But I feel this is generally true about Benjamin. I mean, it's true, Mike and, and Tom, that it's a form of integrity. He doesn't want stylistically to let go of emotions or feelings that matter to people and that matter to him, even if they're politically incorrect. They're not going to alter his politics. His politics are going to be what they are, but the politics doesn't require him to disavow emotions that go with the wrong politics. But isn't it also, could one also read this as a kind of rhetorical strategics, he invokes a, what seems like a kind of lapsarian nostalgia. There used to be aura, it is no more. And you think, aha, this is a false story. And then he turns it on his head and says, but in fact, that's great. And this is why it's great. Yes. Um, in the same way that um, he often says in the debate, for example, about photography and, and whether photography is an art form, he says, in fact, the question of whether photography is an art is the wrong question. It's not whether photography is an art, but rather what art is given photography. So this reversal 
a kind of rhetorics of, 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 of subterfuge is something that one finds across a number of essays. Just a, just a, another anecdote. Uh, he couldn't be further from his friend Brecht on this point. So Brecht at one point in their conversation said, this is not a quotation, I'm remembering it. Brecht says that his job is to provide the theatrical apparatus with no single product that could reinforce its structure, but only elements without regard for their local effect would have the effect of undoing and potentially rebuilding that structure. And in doing so in the interests of the proletariat, one is proletarianized at every single point. Benjamin is clearly thinking to himself, right, and if you believe that, you'll believe anything. Benjamin's position, however, was to exacerbate his self-consciousness as a bourgeois intellectual. So like almost everything he wrote, one of the devices in the essay is the exacerbation of the antinomies within that class position, the exacerbation of the difference between the notion of aura and the notion of montage. And as a stylistic device then, the essay approximates its own object by being a montage essay of theses that do not follow in any easily comprehensible order. One has to reconstellate this essay again and again so that it becomes more kaleidoscopic than any kind of through argumentation could ever help us understand. Putting the reader in the position of a worker, yeah. a, a, a semantic worker, a reader, an interpreter, which is to say it is not like a certain kind of narrative cinema suturing the gaps, but rather in their discrepancy requiring the labor of hermeneutic engagement. And also, I think, uh, using often using terms in pairs, in such a way it seems as if in some old-fashioned mode you could, you could, there's good and bad here, you can pick sides and we'll pick sides. You can't. That's not dialectical means, right? The, the, these two terms have to keep, you have to keep them in place, so you can't, as it were, even ritual, even, even the bad terms, in a way, have to be kept in play to, make, to help us understand the good terms. So that I wouldn't go so far as saying fascism has to be kept in play <laughs> to help us understand communism, but certainly ritual has to still be there in order to, um, and cult to help us understand what is, what is the opposite of cult and escape from it. And there is something very bold and very moving about that, I find. It's all in play, so uh, the words, and we're not used to that, I think. I mean, there's, I don't know in, in other cultures, people are used to thinking immediately. I, yes, in, I, I think of Nietzsche in this context, but I mean, the, a writer who who uses language where you, you can't use a word without thinking about its opposite. The opposite is folded into the word in some way. That seems to be a very interesting stylistic, but it's a little alien, I think, to many readers. This is why he said at one point later that Baudelaire was the secret agent of the destruction of his own class, and Benjamin hoped to be the secret agent of the destruction of his class. And to be a secret agent, you have to sound like the class. Exactly. <laughs> that, you, that you want to undo. I think a big trajectory here that we've been skirting a little bit is that, you know, I, uh, I emphasized at the beginning uh, the, the relationship to history. But the other, the other important aspect and the big trajectory here is that this essay has a key moment, arguably maybe the central moment of Benjamin's construction of a theory of experience that would be both an analysis of con the conditions of contemporary experience and the hope to elaborate a theory of experience that might begin to be proof against the conditions under which one lived. Right? So more important than its status as a, a essay in film theory or in art theory even is its status as a moment in Benjamin's late theory of experience. So by experience, you mean the experience of modern life or of the city or of artworks? Well, yeah, it's not so much in the normal everyday sense of experience. Remember, he's, he's schooled in Kant. And so he is interested in the relationship between sensory apprehension and the cognizability of what is apprehended. And so his basic assumption by at least... 1923-1924 is that our sensory apparatus under conditions of capitalism has been so degraded that we are no longer capable of an adequate sensory apprehension of our environment. And again, in that doubleness, uh, in that phrase he'll later use in the essay of Edward Fuchs, part of our existence under conditions of capitalism is what he calls a bungled reception of technology. And one at the same time, our bungled reception ensures that we remain in the thrall of the forces which conspire against an adequate human apprehension of what, uh, the world in which we live, but that that same technology still bears within it perhaps the potential 
to counteract the effects of aestheticization that he talks about very specifically here and the effects of the anesthetic effect of life under capitalism, the deadening of that sensory apparatus. In other words, it's a kind of philosophy experience and not a sum total, aggregate total of our experience of that world. We should remember that for ben Benjamin explicitly invokes a theory of aesthetics, not as a theory of art, but as he says, in the Greek sense of aesthetics as a theory of perception. Um, and here's to use another marvelous term that he invokes in describing the potential that media per se uh, can offer in that context of this field, the history of perception. New media, and he specifically speaks of new media, can offer a kind of inoculation. Um, they can inoculate us against these worn out habits and therein lies a certain kind of deeply political transformative potential. To come back to the point Michael raised about these apparently nostalgic aspects, Benjamin's understanding of inoculation is always homeopathic, that we became proof against the effects yes. precisely by the assumption into our bodies of the element that is making us sick. Also as a kind of prosthesis, though, a silver rib. Uh, it's precisely the way that technology sees and thus is a kind of ersatz eye, but of course it sees better and differently and thus reveals the sclerotic, limited, tired form of perception that we've inherited and forces us to become a new man, a new type of political seeing differently individual. requires an even, even deeper engagement with the technology and an incorporation of it almost into the body. In that we learn both in that Actors learn how to deal with acting in front of a camera instead of in front of people, in that people go into radio studios and speak in front of microphones instead of speaking to people, in that technology f is, a, is a kind of training ground. And that's why there's this fascinating discussion of the particular kinds of competence that is that of the sports literacy, kind of muscle that is developed through the experience of technology. It's at every level something that transforms one's relation to the world. It makes clear that the, the what we well is thought of as sort of high-toned, high-brow, proper appreciation of art objects is actually a form of ignorance. I mean, not just as with the wrong choice and not just belonging to the, you know, a certain class, but actually a kind of failure at the culture. I mean, as it were, the, it's already sort of barbarism in a way. Uh, the cultured people are the ones who are not seeing. Uh, they don't see they're not having any experience. Right? Because they're absorbed yeah. into the ideological structures which yeah. so have so completely inscribed those kinds of objects, yeah. right? They have yeah. no capacity to yeah. see otherwise. Yeah. Which is why the, the, the movie audiences are so attractive as, a, as an alternative object. They haven't been trained into that. Yeah, so everything that Dermel says, yeah. right. says is wrong with them. Dermel is actually not, not unsympathetic to movie audiences. He thinks they're working class people and they're not, it's not their fault they can't read. It's not their fault that they're overworked and desperate. They just don't make for him an ideal cultural audience. But in fact, they're protected against this particular kind of stupidity. Well, maybe within the context of this discussion around experience and perception, we could talk about Benjamin's use of attention and distraction. What does he mean by attention? If you look at the words, for example, that Duhamel uses are divertissement, passe-temps, spectacle, and all sorts of things, which Benjamin translates as Zeitvertrieb and Zerstreuung for for. Uh, um, you can move them around. And I think one of the fascinating things, is this is related to the stylistic question, one of the fascinating things for sort of you know literary people who love playing around with words is we're so used to thinking you can get a single word and unpack masses of stuff out of it. We're not really used to thinking you have to have a little family of words, like a constellation, and they're all going to move around. So, that, for example, when Benjamin first uses distraction in this essay, he used the word ablenko to be led away, led, led off. Uh, now, and then he uses uh, Zerstreuung and Zamlung. Now, Zerstreuung and Zamlung are a perfect pair, like distraction, uh, being scattered, and being gathered, on the other hand. But Ablenkung is not the opposite of Lenkung. <laughs> it's a kind of Lenkung. <laughs> and, so, and the same is true with words like, he uses the word attention here, uh, both as, I read him as saying distraction is actually a form of attention. That's why a distracted person can form habits and why the movie audiences are distracted. It's not what he says. What he says is the, the movie audience is free of these things because it has no attention. They're not paying attention. Something's going on in their minds. Uh, it's about evaluating things, which actually does not include, he explicitly says, does not include attention. 
So there are some sort of mysteries. I mean, I think the, the points are interesting and, and not, it's not obscure, I think, but it's, uh, it's elusive, analytically elusive. It's a little hard to uh, get at why distraction. I think we have to start by saying what's wrong with its range of opposites that Michael has just laid out. Certainly terms like concentration, which is one translation for Zamluk, um, and attention itself are not always, but in general, allied with a kind of reception. Because what he's talking about here is a very specific situation, the reception of works of art. We're not talking about a general form of attention or distraction in the world, but rather moments or forms or modes of reception. And a mode of reception which relies upon concentration or in a somewhat diluted form upon attention tends, because of its thoroughgoing corruption by the conditions in which we live, to be allied with the absorption into the fascination of the aura, so that our relationship to the work of art then tends to be ritualized. Michael has said that it doesn't give us space for any kind of reaction. It tends to be cultic, and it tends to lend itself to the purposes of fascism. The question is why distraction itself might hold the key to a liberating form of the reception of works of art, and it's pretty clear that just being distracted doesn't quite do the amount of work we needed to, right? right? And so you have to ask yourself what has to happen when one is distracted. And we've talked a little about that. I think distraction is the precondition for certain forms of training and habituation, that concentration with its registers of alliance with certain kinds of art simply doesn't allow for. The person who's done the most important work on this essay is uh, our lamentably now departed colleague, Miriam Bratu Hansen. And what she has done is really unpack this key term, which has, by the second version of the essay, been buried in a footnote significantly, uh, and that's the term innervation. So in the first version of the essay, Benjamin says that the historical task of the work of art is, quote, to make the vast technical apparatus of our time an object of human innervation. And for Benjamin, innervation, and here I'm basically relying on, on a lot of Miriam's work, uh, is a neurophysiological transfer zone. That innervation refers to our ability to absorb and basically internalize certain sensory impulses so that it becomes something that can mediate between the various antinomies of modernity, between the internal and the external, the psychic and the motoric, the human and the machinic, which I think gets at a lot of what's going on in this essay. How, how, do, we, how do we get there? And the answer, typically for Benjamin, the further you press in Benjamin, the more esoteric the answer, right? And so basically by this time, he understands this neurophysiological capacity of innervation as a mimetic capacity. That in a little essay written early 30s called On Mimetic Capacity, he talks about our ability to imitate as the key to any potentially revelatory cognitive moments. And so what's buried here is uh, the note, note 11 to section 6, which is, I think, the very heart of the essay. The aim of revolutions is to accelerate this adaptation. Revolutions are innervations of the collective, or more precisely, efforts at innervation on the part of the new, historically unique collective which has its organs in the new technology. This second technology is a system in which the mastering of elementary social forces is a precondition for playing with natural forces. So we have to master the force of technology if we're to master nature. Quite the reverse of the normal idea that in, the, in Adorno and Hokami's Dialogue of Enlightenment, technology is precisely there to master nature. Right? So Benjamin proleptically reverses that order. And then here's the key sentence. Just as a child who has learned to grasp, stretches out hand for the moon as a wood for a ball, so humanity, in its efforts at innervation, sets its sights as much on currently utopian goals as on goals within reach. For in revolutions, it is not only the second technology which asserts its claims vis-a-vis -vis society. Because this technology aims at liberating humans, human beings from drudgery, the individual suddenly sees his scope for play, his field of action, that term Spielraum, immeasurably expanded. So, distraction on that reading right, is the precondition for a habituated, unconscious 
mimesis of certain aspects that one is encountering in certain kinds of technologically produced artworks. And the key is certain kinds, because not film per se is going to produce that kind of habituation, but precisely specific kinds of films that will have this explosive effect, because only through the mimesis of that kind of formal practice is this desired innervation even potentially possible. It's also interesting, I mean, this, this is a little bit about the diffusion of Benjamin, but the word sestroying is always translated as distraction. In, in all of the land, French, you know, Italian, English, and so on. A distraction actually, I mean, it's a very interesting word, but actually it means something slightly different from Tishtoring. That, that is, a person who's distracted usually is, is doing something other than they're supposed to be doing. You're That's what Aplenko. You're deflected in a different yeah. direction. Aplenko is, 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 is like that. But yeah. I mean, but in distraction, there is a wonderful thing in the, uh, there's a usage of the word distractor. Uh, uh, it's a technical usage for, uh, answers on a multiple choice test. Mm. And it's the answer that is beguilingly plausible but wrong. But I think distraction slightly misleads us from this question because in a way from distraction it's much harder to get. For actual distraction being misled or led off in the wrong direction or concentrating on the wrong thing. With all virtues in their way but nevertheless not quite as open. Sestroying is much more like disponibilité or or openness or negative capability or something, at least if valorized, Sestroyan could mean you're, you're open to things and you're, if you're not gathered, you could be gathered in different ways. It's yeah, different I mean, from quite literally, it doesn't mean distraction. It means basically being strewn about, strewn about. right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. And so Sestroyan in that sense is not, as Michael quite rightly points out, a form of distraction. It's actually Benjamin's term for the breakdown of the coherent unified subject position in front of a work of art. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Right. So it's a different theory of agency. It's exactly. A it's a completely yeah. different theory of agency. Yes. And only when that coherent – here now we're talking about a real form of the use of the distraction. Only when that dispersal takes place of the unified coherent subject position in front of the work of art – can this kind of habituation as a mass take place? Um, and in terms of the, the art forms that allow for this kind of distraction or for how they allow for it, how would you compare how he writes about film and about architecture, about painting? He mentions poetry also. Film seems to be especially privileged, um, and no, architecture is a very interesting role. Yeah, I mean, he explicitly says architecture has a, has a very central exemplary status as that domain in which a distracted mode of engagement has been from the beginning central. So if, if, if film is privileged, so too at various points, although he doesn't articulate it as consistently throughout the essay, but at various points he's very explicit about the centrality of the, the potential lessons that can be learned from the mode of engagement of a collective with space, with built space. In a wonderful quick aside, he describes the cardinal form of that engagement as taktish, mm -hmm. as our colleague Tobias Wilke has pointed out, which means both tactical and tactile, mm -hmm. right? So he's at once playing on this Regalian dis distinction between the haptic and the optic and inserting our en engagement with our built environment into the realm of everyday politics. He's also, I mean, the, in, the, in the essay, when he, when he moves to uh, the, the, the tactile and the, and the optical, he, he's sort of more or less translating uh, use and perception, isn't he? That is, he says, Gebrauch und Vernehmung. But we don't normally think of those things as opposites either. That is, so there is almost a Freudian um, insertion here, isn't it? If you're perceiving, you're not using. If you're using, you're not perceiving. Or some notion that these are all, you know, Though we can, relatively easy to do both, the argument is pushing it, saying if you, what's being uh, recommended here is a form of use without perception. Without perception, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. right. Like a sport, again, the sport benefit, like all the, all the things you do without thinking would be the models here. I suppose this takes us into the tricky realm of the optical unconscious and the, uh, its relation to attention or its opposite. Mm -hmm. um, this uh, is obviously a, a key moment in the essay. He's interested in Again, looking back at late 19th century antecedents for films, so he's clearly thinking about Moybridge, and not just what we see as the end result, namely the horse, who, which actually does have all four hooves off the ground, mm. but rather 
the serialized technology that Muybridge employed to make those pictures, which were a series of cameras, right, mounted along the ground with flashes that went off at prescribed intervals. So the technology, which is invisible in the image, right, was actually a technology for breaking down or dispersing time. And so what, what the optical unconscious in that sense gives us is a frozen island of time that might hold some kind of resistant capacity against the uninterrupted, seemingly forward progress of capitalism, where every day is better in every way, right? Um, but that, too, the optical unconsciousness is also a mimetic capacity. It gives us the possibility to mime or to imitate a different temporal and optical dimension that is usually available to us. It's not an accident that the discussion of the, the optical unconsciousness is followed very closely with the discussion of Dada, which he calls a projectile art, which is also a disintegrative art, right? Not an integrative art. And so we have to imagine forms of architecture that would also have a projectile quality, right? With which he was familiar at the time as a kind of antidote to the ambiguous forms of architecture in the 19th century. And yet crucial in, in each case is the disruptive dimension and its relationship to legibility. Only by suspending, challenging, in, in some way irritating an extant, habituated form of perception, whether it's visual, acoustic, spatial, etc., does the possibility of the legibility of that form and the possibility of a different one become first possible? So a difficult question and a sort of another part of the conversation that we're going to segue into is the contemporary relevance, the contemporary reception of this essay. Um, how can we understand it in terms of the changes that we've had in technology and media? What would be a sort of way to reread Benjamin today in relation to the contemporary arts? And of course, related to that would be maybe a reflection on how architects today can read this essay. I've had debates with colleagues about the appropriateness of laptops in the classroom. One position being, oh, no, absolutely not. I forbid laptops in my classroom because then the students are surfing and, 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 and doing all kinds of things and not paying attention. They're not there. The classroom has to be precisely this place where they shut down these technologies and actually are present. Counterposition, laptops in classrooms produce an entirely new type of student and an entirely new type of seminar. First of all, as if without a laptop, one precludes the possibility of being bored, distracted, sending notes, et cetera, et cetera. As anyone who's taught a, a seminar with lots of students with laptops open knows, the possibility of jacking in and quickly getting a factoid so that one doesn't have to uh, try to remember or the kinds of things that are made first possible with this new technology, disruptive, sometimes irritating, and yet extraordinary, show that there's enormous potential and certainly debatable dangers in this kind of distracted, collective pedagogical experience. Yeah, students can reflect on the erratic nature of their stock portfolio, say. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, do you think this is true, it's about reading, whether, whether these terms are always, to a certain extent, politicized, so that they're not just analytic words, so there's always a kind of, in ordinary usage, I mean now, that when people use the word distraction, when you, when you read titles of books, for example, the position, this is certainly true of the DML and, uh, and of all those contemporaries who are talking about the movies, and the way people now talk about the web, all the anti people The argument is something like this, distraction is bad, is unequivocally bad, and only some people do it, the working classes, our students, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, we don't do it. We, we, do, we don't nod off. We don't make notes or do things. We are never distracted because we know the distraction is a terrible thing and we concentrate all the time. So I, I, I wonder if, if this is you know, just part, a large chunk or whether there's always an inherently uh, conservative politics engaged in actually in, in the use of the word, in the polemical use of the word distraction, which Benjamin has already picked up and so we run with the opposite in a way. Yeah. But I, it does seem certainly true in most of the titles and, and of course, then, of course, what happens to this, it's just interesting about contemporary reading, if you resist it, if you wish then to advocate the use of the computers in the classroom, you're still governed by that paradigm. Only you're merely saying it's a good thing. The, the trick is to find some usage that will, as Mike was saying about Benjamin, first of all, invert it, and then let us know that's not really it. It wasn't, you didn't just have to invert it, you had to do something else. You had to learn something after the, after the inversion you start learning. Because just inverting it, doesn't really do the trick. But what does a laptop in a classroom do? It changes the 
dynamics of power. Absolutely. Um, and that's not negligible. No, um, and certainly plays a, at least some role in the critique of and anxiety about these kinds of technologies yeah. in, in that space. Yeah. But there is, I, I sort of love, I love the kind of, uh, the idealized form of conservatism in, in many of these remarks, in a way, because it's sort of like here we are, stately, orderly, concentrated people always on time, and then there are these kids, all the working classes, all other races or whatever, or Arabs or whatever it is, they're all failing to concentrate. They can't get their acts together. Who could possibly believe in this fiction? <laughs> who, who are, who's the we in this story? It's incredible. And yet they're all, they're all there in public, you know, in the, out there in the media and the press. I'm asked all the time, uh, why do people, theorists have come and gone, why does Benjamin persist? Why is he still there? Well, my answer, which I thought about a lot, is that he's, because he's not primarily a theorist, but a writer. And if all those other theorists had been able to write a tenth as well as Benjamin, <laughs> they might still be read. Because uh, if you think about the waves of, I mean, this essay is a kind of paradigm for the waves of reception. So the first major reception around 1968, which actually was philological. It started out as a debate about Adorno and his student Tiedemann's expurgation or actually alteration of key passages in Benjamin to depoliticize them, which was followed probably at a 10-year interval by what we might call a first wave of philological work on Benjamin, but only on a few major texts. And that the philological gave way, as the philological often does, to the deconstructive. And so we then had a moment of Benjamin in the Hall of Mirrors, which is now followed, I think, by a second philological wave that is now beginning to mine those seemingly inconsequential essays, especially in the 20s, which actually are, contain some of the most important insights. And it, the younger scholars are only now beginning to dig those out. And so there's, we're finally getting a little less attention to big essays like this one. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's there that we're going to find a new Benjamin as young people start to read these, uh, uh, these frequently, uh, previously unavailable little essays mm -hmm. where you get these incredible sudden aperçus that are expressed in an inimitable language. And I think there's something else. I think this essay in particular has a, an extraordinary afterlife and a deeply urgent contemporaneity because, in fact, it is not an essay about film. It's not an essay about any medium per se, but it's an essay about the convulsive consequences of radical media historical transition. Given that we're living in an age which is marked if by nothing else than by profound media historical transition, nothing is more useful than a, a text that explores as a kind of heuristic uh, meditation what the ramifications of transition, of media historical transition, the political ramifications might be. In that sense, this is an essay that speaks to our current historical moment in a way that few others continue to do. You've been listening to a roundtable debate on rereading Benjamin's theory of attention and distraction produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Thanks to Daniela Fabricius, doctoral candidate in architecture at Princeton University School of Architecture, for hosting the debate, and to professors Mike Jennings, Michael Wood, and Thomas Levin of the German department for their time and generosity in sharing their thoughts on the question of attention and distraction in Walter Benjamin's artwork essay.